Have you ever had a dream? A real dream? A dream where you see things nobody else has ever seen? A dream where you imagine what could be, not what is? A dream so out there, you couldn't fully describe it to others? Do you think you could ever make it a reality? Often, we place our dreams in the mental storage unit labelled far-fetched. But what if you actually just went and did it? What could you achieve? It's the life of a man from County Clare which answers these questions for us. This is his story. In Liz Canner, in 1841, a man was born. His name was John Holland. The Ireland he was born into was very different than the Ireland we see today. It was just a few years before the famine would start, and as half the population hadn't starved to death or immigrated due to the anti-Irish law, the country was filled with a majority of Irish speakers. The stories of the fairies, leprechauns, Undini Ma and the Banshees lingered on the lips of all across the island. On a nightly basis, the poor would gather in the houses of their neighbours and by the flickering fire lights would swap stories of their encounters with the Trixie fairy people. Pipes would be smoked and pochine passed around the room as songs would be sang, poems would be written and food would be shared. John's father, John Senior, was a member of the Coast Guard in County Clare, keeping a watchful eye over the Atlantic Ocean as it battered the wild Irish coast. The area which he guarded was once thought to be the very edge of the world before the new world of the Americas were found. Every night he would come home and tell his son of the adventures he had whilst on his boat. He told him of the deep sea monsters he faced during the day and how he and the other members of the Coast Guard fought them off and protected the beaches of Lahinch. He told him how there used to be more of Ireland but giant creatures bit it off in a fierce battle creating the Cliffs of Moher. He taught him of an ancient land which had been lost to the powerful sea called Atlantis and now it was his job to make sure it didn't happen to Ireland. He taught him of the kings, gods and queens of Atlantis and the mythical twelve who left just before it sank and how they had once ruled the entire world. He painted vivid pictures in young John's mind's eye of the riches of the land and the great cities similar to ancient Egypt. This built up such a wonder in young John that he used to ask his father to take him out to the ocean so they could look for it. On a number of occasions he tried to swim from the coast to find it but always failed. As well as Atlantis, near his home, he also had to be careful of the mythical land known as Kilstephen, a land referenced in the ancient Irish texts, which was said to have been submerged into the sea during the 8th century as a result of a great earthquake. This land was said to have held ancient secrets, and the people of the island now fight a monstrous eel of the deep on a daily basis, and every seven years, during a storm, the land would reappear and the people would attack the coast as they felt betrayed to have been left under the ocean by those left on the mainland. There were also stories of the bay, just in front of John's home, that it was the lair of the eel, and it would occasionally burst from the ocean and take more victims back under the ocean to feast on. John's mother, Mary, was an Irish speaker and did not have a word of English, which would have been relatively common at the time. As a result, John's home was Irish-speaking only, and he only began to hear the English language when he was able to go to the Christian Brothers School in Ennistamon. Whilst the famine ripped across Ireland, 
taking with it the lives of millions of Irish men, women and children. It also stole the Celtic ways, the language and the traditions. As it manoeuvred its way through the towns and villages, until such time as instead of children playing in the street, all that could be heard was the sound of the wind, carrying desperation and horror as it weaved and spun through the narrow Irish streets. John's father's job left the family relatively okay, in comparison to his friends. As being a coast guard, he was more in demand during the famine than ever before. It was his job to ensure that the boats entering and leaving Ireland would be protected from the Irish pirates attacking them to take food being exported from the island. Being a proud Irishman and a believer in the cause of the United Irishman, this broke his heart, but it was a role he had to fulfil in order to keep his family fed. There were rumours, however, that on occasion he would provide information to the pirates as to when the boats were arriving so they could attack before the ship left the docks. Whilst in school, John excelled. He was quickly identified by the teachers as a boy of high intellect. As the schools were growing, he was offered the opportunity to work as a teacher himself. This took him to Limerick to teach in CBS Sexton Street, then to Cork to teach in the North Mon, and then on to Port Leash in Drogheda. He also became the first maths teacher to ever teach Catholics in Dundalk. In 1873, his health started to suffer. This was a common occurrence for those children who had survived the famine. Because of the lack of nutrition during their growing years, their immune systems were very weak, and they often suffered with their health. Many of them would die a result of malnutrition in later life, claiming more victims of the famine, which insisted on tormenting the Irish. It was at this point John lost his job with the Christian brothers, as he could no longer manage to teach for the entire year without being off sick for most of it. With sick pay not being a thing yet, and the lack of need for Catholic maths teachers outside of the school system, John's only option was to get in a ship and take his chances in America. When he arrived in America, he hid his illness and through a strong network of Irish people working together for those getting off the boats, John was offered a job as a teacher in New Jersey. He worked here for a while again before his health caught up with him and he had to leave his role. Whilst pondering what to do next, the Irish network found him a role in an engineering firm in Boston. As they were aware of his ability in maths, they thought it would be a good fit for the man from the old country. One fateful morning, John was walking through the Boston streets on his way to work. He slipped the ice and fell. As he hit the ground, he felt an incredibly sharp pain in his leg. He turned over, rolled up the leg of his trousers and saw a bone sticking out through the skin. The brittle bones in his legs had shattered and they were protruding through the skin. John fainted and when he woke up he found he'd been taken to a hospital and a priest called Isaac Whelan was sat next to him. He worried over the fees at the hospital and tried to leave. Father Whelan stopped him and reassured him it was okay, the Irish community would look after the costs. John's job now was to rest and recover from his injury. 
as he would require a number of surgeries to fix his leg. Father Whelan told him to find a way to stay busy and gave him a writing pad. They shared stories of home and John told Father Whelan of the adventures at sea his father would create for him. He told him how he was a maths teacher and now working as an engineer. Father Whelan told him, You've been blessed with ability and time. Why not invent a way to find Atlantis and kill Stephen? This somewhat flippant joke by Father Whelan sparked off an idea in John's head and he immediately started scribbling on the paper. Then, when Father Whelan saw what he was doing, he encouraged John to keep scribbling, sketching and planning. He saw he was onto something and the excitement built in the two men. Father Whelan rushed out with the drawings to a group in America known as the Fenians. The Fenians were an Irish Republican group based in America. The organization's full name in America was the Fenian Brotherhood. It was founded by John O'Mahony and Michael Donnie, both of whom had taken part in the failed Young Irelanders Rising of 1848 and escaped to America for safety. They named the organisation after the Fianna, an ancient group of Irish warriors from the old Celtic mythology. The Brotherhood was designed to gain funds in America in order to support further risings back home. They petitioned those Irish who had made it wealthy in the New World and gained their financial support. They also joined the American armies in order to learn about combat and strategy so they could return home to fight. They constantly raided the Canadian army for weapons, which they stored in the hope of one day bringing it back to Ireland with them. Their ranks grew so big that at one point it is said they had over 100,000 members ready and able to return home to Ireland to fight. Their raids in Canada became out of hand and they started a small war between Canada and the Irish immigrants. At this point, they had moved on from just stealing weapons. They were raiding Canada for food and money too. They even went as far as invading parts of Canada, declaring it for Ireland so they could negotiate the swapping of that land with the British in exchange for Ireland. After Father Whelan had gone to the Fenians with John's idea, they were intrigued and agreed to make his scribbles a reality. They were able to fund him to such a level that he no longer required another job. He was funded to fully focus on his designs. In 1875, John submitted his designs to the US Navy. They rejected it as a crazy idea and one that would never work. Three years later, with the ideas further developed, John returned to the US Navy and submitted the designs for the world's first submarine. In 1881, he launched the prototype called Holland 1. The Fenians came out to watch with the US Navy. Joining them was the leadership of Clonagale. These were a group who saw the submarine as something they could use to get guns and money back to Ireland without the British seeing them so they could start another revolution and finally free the old country. Clan de Gael were also interested in the US Navy being involved 
as they thought, if it works, they could equip it with weapons and the Irish rebels could sink the entire British Navy before they would know what was happening. John's version had no guns, but it was designed to be a battering ram as well as a courier ship. His main focus, however, was exploration. The Fenians even joked at the possibility of being able to tell the English that it was the ancient Irish underwater gods which were taking down their boats as they would never see the submarine. When Holland 1 launched, it immediately sank to the bottom of the lake they were testing it in. Luckily, as they were just testing it, nobody was inside. Everyone left disappointed and John was very upset about what had happened. Father Whelan and the Fenians encouraged him to keep going and in 1881 a submarine called Holland II, known by those who worked in it as the Fenian Ram, was placed into the water for a test. John himself climbed into the hatch of it and those in the banks watched as the top of the submarine began sinking into the ocean. Minutes came and minutes passed and there was no sign of the submarine coming back up. As time ticked on, those watching began to assume John had drowned in his design as there was no way he would be able to survive for that long. One of the heads of the Navy sent a message to get a rescue party ready. He wanted the metal back. The Fenians claimed, as they had paid for it, they were entitled to the metals from John's watery coffin. As they argued over the rights to the parts, they began to see ripples forming on the other side. They watched in awe as John's submarine came back up to the surface after travelling all the way over. The crowd cheered and John leapt out of it with excitement, telling them all of what it was like under the water surface. Soon after this event, the Fenians and John fell out over payment issues and he became fully employed with the US Navy. As a result, the Navy took all John's designs and prototypes and it left the Fenians with nothing. John continued to work on his designs until his death in 1914, just before the might of his designs would be fully tested in World War I. He spent the years after this first successful test exploring the ocean floors himself in his submarines. He never found Atlantis or Kilsteven but without his efforts, one of the world's great technologies would not exist today. His designs were sold all across the world, and John made a fortune during his life post-teaching. He was also given great honours across the world from world leaders. Japan even granted him their highest military honour as a thank you for his work. He is only a handful of non-Japanese to ever receive a similar offer. In 1916, his designs and the Fenian Ram were displayed in New York to raise money for the victims and widows of the failed Easter Rising. In a bit of a twist of fate, today in the Gosport Submarine Museum for the British Royal Navy, the first British submarine is on display as a mark of their great powers. On the side of it is written, Holland 1. There is no mention that it only exists there as it was a weapon designed to take down the entire British Navy.
Today's music was written, performed and produced by Ryan O'Halloran. We the Irish is an Ireland Loves production. If you enjoyed this episode and want to help us to continue to create more, you can buy us a coffee at www.buymeacoffee.com slash we the Irish. Ornus Anam Dum, Gurmagut, Slonanish.